self-referential, self-absorbed play about family dynamics. Act 1. What can go wrong? First, let me say this. I have zero faith in what you're about to hear. I think you should keep in mind that it's not a reenactment, no matter how much it tries to convince you otherwise. The writer and producer call it verbatim theatre. I call it bullshit. And I'm in a position to know. The characters are based on my family, my parents, my brother. To understand what you're about to hear, you have to visualize unpeeling an onion. At first, you'll probably think it's a story within a story. But keep peeling, because this is a story within a story within a story. And about now, you'll be wondering whether I can be trusted, right? Fair enough. I mean, we hardly know each other. Am I a reliable narrator? Good question. And keep peeling, because it gets complicated. Not even the participants of this story seemed exactly sure about what was real and what was not. There were disagreements. The disagreements turned to arguments. There was a lot of anger. In the end, no one could agree about anything. All the trouble started with the performance of a monologue my dad wrote. The performance took place at a live show called Little Fictions at a venue called the Knox Street Wine Bar in Sydney. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The next performance this evening is Asexual Gelatinous Blobs of Alpha Centauri. It's written by Mark Hunter and performed this evening by Mark Desai. Let's have a big hand for Mark. <laughs> it's good, thank you. <clears throat> I'm looking back, wondering whether it's possible to recall the when or the why. One thing I do know there was no single defining moment where it hit me out of a clear blue sky like one of those falling anvils in the cartoons. No, it was more a series of small moments that to an outsider might look kind of cliched, but I can't help that. You might say, Daniel, aren't you making too much of this? We're all different in our own way. Yes, but my kind of different made things awkward. I always felt it had to be disguised. But maybe that's just me. I wouldn't like to say I am typical or atypical or even stereotypical. I don't mean to suggest that this has relevance to any other person's life. I can't speak for others. I can barely speak for myself. So, anyway, this is the way I remember it. I was in the audience that night. I listened to the monologue Mark wrote, but what really grabbed my attention was the reaction to it from the family. I mean, Mark appeared to be enjoying every minute of it, lots of applause and so on, whilst the rest of his family seemed, I don't know, I guess you could say uncomfortable about what they'd just heard up on that stage. Right then and there, I thought there was a great podcast idea in the tension I was witnessing that night between the writer and his family. I went straight up and introduced myself to Mark, and as I suspected, he was immediately receptive to the idea of a podcast about himself and his writing. Later, he claimed, there was an element of entrapment and manipulation behind this. I'll leave it to you to make up your mind about that.
a strictly factual account. Uh, is that thing on? Are you recording now? Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm a bit nervous. Relax, you'll be fine. I'll ask some questions, we'll have a chat, and that's basically it. Easy. So, Mark, the monologue that you wrote, the one that was performed at the Little Fiction tonight, it's your son Daniel's coming out story, isn't it? Yes, but it's not a, well, you know, a, a strictly factual account. The subject's serious, of course. But I wanted it to be light, a humorous piece overall. It does come over as mainly comic in tone. While you're writing it, did you seek permission from Daniel? How do you mean? Permission. Did you get his approval to go public with these anecdotes from his childhood? Uh, well, not specifically. I, I mean, he knew all about it. He was there on the night of the performance at Little Fictions, and he enjoyed it. He, he said he liked it. And anyway, I wouldn't let someone else, even my son, have a final say in something I wrote. You're talking about censorship. Actually, I'm talking about empowerment. From Daniel's perspective, his right to control how his story was being told. No. You're trying to stop the writer from telling the story his own way. The thing to remember is I was sensitive to his betrayal. I'm his father. I wouldn't have written anything nasty or critical. It was written sympathetically from his point of view. I think you misunderstand. I'm interested in the tensions between the writer and his subject when both happen to be family members. I'm just wondering how Daniel feels about you writing so publicly about his private life. It's still a kind of cultural appropriation, though, isn't it? Uh, what are you doing? I'm Googling cultural appropriation. People fling these trendy terms around. I want to know how offended I should be. Be Bear with me. I don't think you need... Yes, (laughs) I thought so. I did not exploit his gay culture, if that's what you mean. So you're not interpreting Daniel's queer experience of coming out through your straight eyes? That's not how I see it. You're trying to say that straight writers shouldn't write about gay people. (laughs) And what? Gay writers shouldn't write about straight people? I mean, that's that's just crazy. Look, I'm a writer. It's a writer's prerogative to imagine other people's lives and capture them on a page. And anyway, what about you? Me? If anything, you're the one who's doing what you accuse me of, putting words in Daniel's mouth. Why don't you ask him what he really thinks instead of jumping to conclusions that are way off the mark? I will. I knew he'd get around to me. So what's it like hearing your story being told by your father in his words rather than your own? I knew he'd get around to me eventually. Could you explain that? Well, he'd worked his way through the others. Stories about my mother's pregnancies, my sister's childhood. He's always writing. Always searching for material. Any little anecdote. Dad even has a line about that. He says, we're all just characters in each other's narrative fiction. So are you just a character in Mark's narrative fiction? In the monologue, yes. It's not really me, it's Dad's version of me. Would you say he's careful not to hurt or misrepresent the people in his stories? No. No? No way. I'd say it's the opposite. He's not careful at all. I I don't think it comes up, to be honest. He's not worried about the facts. It's all about the story with Dad. Oh, sorry. I'll turn that off. Thanks. Do you think then that maybe your father has trouble seeing boundaries? Oh, I don't think he has any trouble seeing the boundaries. (laughs) He sees them and then he walks right through them. 
Nothing gets in the way of a good story. So with your coming out story, were you at all concerned about how your dad was going to write it up? Honestly, it wouldn't have made any difference what I felt. We've all learned by now. What do you mean? How do you stop a writer? He asked me about a whole bunch of stuff from my past. I didn't refuse to answer the questions or anything. It was just dad being dad with his writing obsession. And so that was that. He went and made a story out of it. Out of me. But it was your story. Surely you could have insisted on a strictly truthful version, one that you would be happy with. Look, there's this line Dad uses when he's trying to be funny about writing. It's a quote from some author. I can't remember his name. It goes, When a writer is born into a family, that family is finished. And it's so true. When people ask me, I always say it's like living in the same house with a serial killer. A serial killer? Uh, uh, Yeah, well, what would you call him? He's working his way through the family, whacking us one by one. Your mum gets it in the head first. Blam! He's going from room to room, working down the family line. Shit, there goes your sister. Blam, blam. Cousins, uncles, aunts. Blam, blam, blam. Uh, Okay, I might be overdoing the sound effects here. Can you edit that bit out? Sure, consider it done. (sighs) Thanks. I don't want to be too hard on Dad. Don't want to make him sound like he's deranged or anything. We'll get rid of the psychopath inferences in the editing, but let me just ask. When you say living with a serial killer, do you mean you feel like a victim of his writing? I don't know about victim, but you know you're on that list. You're waiting for your turn. Eventually, the writer is going to get around to you, isn't he? He can't help himself. So there's no escaping from it? Not even for him. He even shoots himself in the foot all the time. Blam. Oh, whoopsie, just shot my own foot off. He writes really cruel stuff about himself. There's no mercy. The man has a compulsion to whack his family and friends. It's like something out of The Sopranos with chuckles. So he's a hitman with a sense of humour. If you like. We learn to live with it. What it comes down to is, we're all just fodder for one of Dad's funny stories. Okay, could you say then that he's sort of a hilarious Hannibal Lecter, lunching on your life stories? That's more like it. Now you're finally getting the general idea. At six years old. Six years old. Six years old. Six years old. At six years old, my father wants to sign me up to play soccer with our local team. Every Saturday morning, my body is more or less present on the soccer field. On one memorable occasion, alerted by the shouting of the excitable man who is our coach, I look down to discover that the ball has rolled to a stop next to me. At this point, I become acutely aware that a swarm of seven-year-olds is bearing down on me with madness in their eyes and murder in their heart. I kick it. The ball somehow goes in. I have scored. Wow. I have scored in my own net. Oops. I sold my soul for Chinese dumplings. Phone, Daniel. Phone's off? Yes, yes, it's off. So, Daniel, did you really play soccer as a six-year-old? Absolutely. That's the thing about Dad's stories. He takes stuff that really happened. He always starts from the truth and then embellishes the shit out of it. Kind of like performing plastic surgery on your life story. Actually, make that botched plastic surgery, because you hardly recognise yourself. Anyway, I hated soccer. Definitely not my kind of people. 
You know what they say, soccer is where all the straight guys go. I hated the coach. He was one of those angry win-at-all-cost nutjobs. Dad bribed me into playing sport. And then he handed me over to the control of a soccer Nazi. Just like that. Maybe, I don't know, because he knew he'd get a good story out of it. And in the monologue, the character says he was bribed with Chinese dumplings. I just assumed that was your dad throwing in a bit of his humorous embellishment. No, it's true. I sold my soul for Chinese dumplings. Took my first bribe at six. It was way too cheap. I didn't know enough about negotiating skills. Looking back on it now, of course, I could have cleaned up big time. I should have held out for the Barbie cheerleader doll. No, wait. At the time, it would have been a Ken doll. Beach Ken. Bermuda shorts, floral shirt, chiseled torso. I love Ken. Did you love Ken? Not really. No, I can't say I did. No, you look more like the action man doll type. No offense. Actually, it was G.I. Joe. Whatevs. But God, Ken was gorgeous. He was my gay icon before I even knew what an icon was. (laughs) Or gay for that matter. He's still a bit of a role model, if I'm honest. The rippling abs, great bone structure, not a strand of hair ever out of place. A lot of that's down to plastic, of course. True. If the handsome hunk had a cock, he would be just about perfect. Right. Uh, Well, uh, getting back to your dad's monologue. Uh, Yeah, I was forgetting. It's not about me, or cockless Ken. It's about my dad's story about me. I'm just the source material, right? Mark seemed to find the soccer episode of your life very amusing. He thought it was funny enough to put in a monologue, so I guess so, yes. But, you know, that bit about me scoring an own goal, that was bullshit. I never did that. I didn't do much of anything, actually. Just counted the minutes till I could get off the field and into the dumplings. So you didn't score in your own net? Nope, that was dad exaggerating. He needed a punchline, so he made one up. He made you seem more incompetent than you really were. Mm. Now let me see. I think what you're doing is called leading the witness. Objection, Your Honour. Prosecution is trying to nudge the line of questioning towards the outcome he's seeking. Are you studying law or something, Daniel? Nope. I'm studying Netflix courtroom dramas. And that is a clear-cut objection sustained. Okay, Your Honour. I'll withdraw the question. Let me rephrase it. Did Mark stretch the truth about your brief soccer career to get a laugh at your expense? Hell yeah. That's the whole point. That's how he writes. The man tells outrageous whoppers for a living. But, you know, let's face it. The story was basically right. I did it for the dumplings. I like to say my soccer career was a series of kickbacks. (laughs) Lol. Artistic license. Mark, can we talk about the soccer anecdote in the monologue? According to Daniel, it didn't happen. It's called artistic licence. The story's supposed to be funny. So obviously I had to insert some gags. Daniel could easily have scored an own goal. (laughs) That's how bad at soccer he was. Did it worry you that this might sound like a heteronormative writer feeding into the stereotype? You know the one about gays not being interested in macho pursuits like sport? Uh, What are you doing? I'm googling heteronormative. Uh, Just to confirm that you're insulting me. (laughs) Yep, thought so. You're doing it again, insulting me with jargon. Thanks very much for that. Look, the core point is that Daniel was not actually interested in, if you like, 
typical male hobbies like sports. I mean, that's not really exclusively typical of either gender, don't you think? I'm not buying into that. You know what I meant? Daniel hated soccer. He loved theatre, music, dressing up. But your soccer anecdote wasn't actually true, was it? Oh, so you think writers have to stick strictly to evidence-based facts, is that it? Well, you know, in this instance, yes. You're telling your son's coming out story. Isn't there an expectation that it should be a true account? It was true to the character of the person I was writing about. We seem to be playing with the definition of truth here. (laughs) That's an elastic word these days, isn't it? Okay, maybe my story wasn't strictly true. Maybe we need to call it something else. A humorous yarn, a tall story. Call it whatever the hell you like. So my point is that you may be perpetuating stereotypes by inventing these stories. Well, (laughs) you know, in that case, it's all invention. That's what writing is. That's what life is. Stephen King said that fiction is the truth inside the lie. All I'm saying is that I'm very, very wary of the word truth as an absolute fact. And you just mentioned stereotypes? They exist precisely because before there was ever a stereotype... There had to be a type. Daniel was always a type. But was he? Or did you impose that persona onto him? What do you mean by type, anyway? Let's just say Daniel met the expectations of how you might think a gay kid would turn out. And I don't mean that critically. I know where you're coming from with your questions, but you're wrong. I'm not imposing labels on him. It was so obvious to me and his mum right from the start that Daniel was, if you like, born to be stereotypically gay. He brought it with him. But hey, don't take my word for it. Talk to his mum. Sophie will tell you. Yes, I will. When he was a kid... Come on, kids. When he was a kid... Daniel wasn't like most other boys of his age. It's true that he never took to any sport, none that I can recall. From about four or so, he was into Disney musicals, theatre, dolls, basically anything his sister Stephanie was into. Listening to Mark's monologue, the takeaway is that Daniel was very much what you might call a stereotypical gay kid. I don't know what that is. What do you mean? Well... I don't want to make sweeping statements here, but I think Mark means to say that Daniel was always uninterested in what people assume are the typical male pursuits. I don't know. I mean, to me, he's my son. He's not a bunch of clichés pulled out of the air. Okay, but, well, isn't that what you just said? You you know the Disney musicals, the the theatrical interests? Aren't they part of what we might call gay cliché? We were talking about when he was a child. I mean... There's obviously a lot more to him than that. That's how he was when he was four years old, for God's sake. He's grown and developed in so many other ways. He doesn't seem stereotypical to me. I don't like these labels. I don't think they're necessary. Right. Well, I guess you could say that's what this podcast is about. To get under the labels, deconstruct the stereotypes. Is that what you're doing? Good. I'm glad. Just as long as you're not going to end up reinforcing those stereotypes. Because, you know, if you don't mind me saying so, you seem to be focusing on them. That's not my intention. Is that what you think Mark does with his writing? What? Stereotyping for his own purposes, for comic effect, let's say. Oh, no, I wouldn't say that. And Mark wouldn't like that, I would think. Sophie, 
Are you familiar with the term mansplaining? Oh, God, you're not going to explain mansplaining to me, are you? Well, well, no, not if... I know exactly what mansplaining is, and I certainly don't need a man to explain it to me, thanks all the same. Right, um, I wasn't going... Anyway, the reason I brought it up was that, given Mark, a straight male, took it upon himself to write up this essentially gay monologue, I mean... Isn't that in a way mansplaining? By which I mean a patronising exercise in talking down to an audience? Isn't that what it might seem like in particular to the gays in the audience? A kind of condescending heterosplaining, perhaps? I never thought of it like that. But I guess you're right. I suppose it must be hard to shake off if you grew up with it. We all carry subconscious prejudices. That's my point. How much of the monologue is Mark's lived experiences tainted by his innate prejudices and how much is it Daniel's authentic life? I don't mean just Mark. I'm talking about you as well. It must be hard for you to shake off your prejudices, your lived experiences, if you like. You're not gay, are you? No. Not even a little bit? How do you mean? Well, it can be a spectrum thing, can't it? doesn't have to be all or nothing. If you look at the whole homosexual thing in history, the line is much more blurred than it is today. You know, the ancient Greeks didn't even have a word for it. Pretty much all of them were having a crack at it at some point in their lives. I mean, if you were living in ancient Athens, you could well be a little bit gay. What about Daniel, then? Is he, um, you know, a, a keen practitioner? What? Oh, God, yes. He's a lot gay. As gay as you can get, I'd say. But my point was that you and Mark have something in common. You think we're both a little bit gay? (laughs) Hardly. That's part of the problem. I was going to say you both identify as totally, and might I say boringly, straight. Which means when you represent the gay scene in your creative work, you're both... What did you call it? Heterosplaining? Yes. You're doing it right now in this podcast. How is this not one big exercise in what you call heterosplaining? Perhaps we should leave it there. Perhaps we should. At nine years old. At nine years old. At nine years old. At nine years old, I have a friend called Lawrence who lives in my street. He is utterly indifferent to sports and passionate about steamed dumplings. Clearly, it was meant to be. Most days after school, we lie around together in a hammock having intense conversations about the glamorous pop stars and television celebrities we adore and memorable Chinese lunches we have consumed. One awful day, Lawrence Lawrence tells me his family is moving back to Hong Kong. I'm inconsolable. Goodbye, Lawrence. Hello, heartache. My first boy crush. Can we talk about the Lawrence sequence in the monologue? Was there a real Lawrence? Yes. Dad got that spot on. My first boy crush. Nine? Thereabouts. Was it reciprocated? Did Lawrence have feelings for you, do you think? There's a bit Dad missed out of the monologue. The important bit. Important to me, anyway. Lawrence came back from Hong Kong when he was 11 or so, it would have been year six. How did that go? It didn't. Lawrence had changed. He was into soccer big time and, well, you know all about me and soccer, not exactly one of my passions. 
He'd become one of the sporty, rough, tough boys, the type I had nothing in common with. But you still had the dumplings. (laughs) Yes, just not together. I think it broke my heart more when he came back than when he left. Why do you think that was? Because I knew then, after Lawrence came back, that we hadn't shared what I thought we'd shared. And I'm not talking dumplings here. I guess I felt more alone than ever at that point. Just me and my humongous gay secret. Already? At eleven? I knew from about seven. I just knew. I didn't identify as gay, obviously. Not in a sexual way. But I knew I liked boys. Really liked them. My scary secret. I couldn't tell anybody. I thought there was something not quite right about me. Something different. I didn't know how to tell anybody. I didn't even know what it was that I wanted to tell. So I was in denial for most of my childhood. Also, because I was into the whole Christian thing at the time, and my church would have never accepted a gay kid. You were a regular churchgoer until recently, weren't you? Yes, it was a big part of my life. But my church was not tolerant about gays. They thought we were abnormal, we were going to hell. So my solution was to shut it out, not think about it, pretend it wasn't happening. I did this for years, until I couldn't do it anymore. It's like... It's like there's a second you inside the outer shell. The all-singing, all-dancing, fabulous you. And he wants to get out. It took me years to sort it out in my head. But the beginning of it all was when I was nine or ten. It started with a friend called Lawrence who lived in my street. Just the way it is in the monologue. Ten years old. Ten years old. At ten years old, the year of the Spice Girls, posh, ginger, sporty, baby and scary, the endlessly wonderful Spice Girls sweep into my life via my sisters. Together with her friends, she forms a kind of tribute act incorporating makeup, costumes, dance moves. They learn all the lyrics to Wannabe and want to perform the song every day during school lunch break. My sister is Posh Spice, which makes her almost famous at our school. I bask in reflected glory. I am almost famous once removed, which makes me not quite almost famous. I was a wannabe Spice Girl. Crap Podcast. Crap Podcast. Stephanie, could could I have a word with you, Stephanie? No. I won't take up much of your time, just a couple of questions. I already told you. I made it clear, didn't I? I don't want to have any part of your crap podcast. Why? Because it's going to be a shit fest. You're kicking over a stone and a whole lot of negative stuff is going to crawl out. Leave me out of it. I just want to ask about Daniel Spicegull's face and about how close you two were. I know what you want. A bit of drama for your suburban reality show. You're turning my family into... Kitchen Sink Kardashians. Kitchen Sink Kardashians. Hey, that's pretty good. I like it. Mind if I use that in the podcast? I don't want to be in your shitty podcast. Now piss off. Stay tuned for episode two, when Daniel reveals his father's lust for ginger spice. Cannibals. Script by Mark Hunter. 
Music by Rowan Lane. Stephanie is played by Heidi Harrington-Johnson. The interviewer is Clive Lane. The actor is Mark Desai. Mark is Rob White. Sophie is Lois Marsh. Daniel is Zoltan Sneed. Voice coach, Christine Rule. Produced by Neil Ashworth with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Recorded in the Blackwall Studios, Hornsby.